0: an attempted military coup in Turkey. Government officials claim at least 60 people have
1: been killed. The Turkish Prime Minister is saying that the military in his country has taken illegal action against its own government. Gunfire has been heard in the streets. Military jets are conducting low flyovers over the major cities of the country and bridges over the Bosporus have been shut by the
2: military. Many, many people now are out on the streets, obviously answering the call from President Erdogan, who appears to be still in the country, but he's been on FaceTime urging his supporters to go out onto the street and to protest against this military coup. So clearly uh, a very tense situation that's developing.
3: From the Berkeley Center at UCLA and The Generation, UCLA's foreign affairs journal, this is Global Voices. I'm Sarah Wyman.
1: I'm Holt Alden. I'm Jason Lewis.
3: And I'm Susan O. Oh. And today we want to talk more about what you just heard, the coup in Turkey that happened last July. What exactly happened? Why did it happen? And what does it have to do with what's happening in the United States right now? So to begin, let's ask the obvious question. What's the connection between a coup in Turkey and the 2016 US presidential election?
0: What happened in Turkey wasn't an isolated incident. It all relates to this idea of the strong man. The strongman gains power through ultranationalism and creates groups of, air quotes, others or outsiders that then unites the population and gives them a common identity. In modern history, the strongman has evolved from a dictator to somebody who at least has the facade of democracy or of popular support. Many of these strongmen came to power through legitimate elections and often do have the popular support that they feel legitimizes their mandate to rule. They are demagogues political leaders who seek support by appealing to popular desires and prejudices rather than using rational arguments. The Strongman is making an appearance in North America, like with Donald Trump, in Europe, in Asia, in the Philippines, and throughout the Middle East. Specifically, President Bashar al-Assad in Syria, Erdogan in Turkey, and their predecessors in the greater Middle East, such as Saddam Hussein in Iraq and Hosni Mubarak in Egypt. It is an important issue, and it is global.
3: Okay, so let's switch gears to the coup that happened in July. What exactly was it that went down?
0: So there are two really important things you need to know about the coup. First, it was the fifth coup in modern Turkish history, which is pretty wild. And second, this is the first time a coup in Turkey has been unsuccessful.
3: And both these points are really important because they begin to illustrate what a significant role coups have played in defining and regulating Turkish democracy since it was founded in the 1920s. And that history is, in turn, integral for understanding both why this coup happened and what makes it so different from its predecessors. Here's Holt again with a brief history lesson.
0: So this guy, Kemal Ataturk, which literally means father of the Turks in Turkish, founded what is today Turkey from the remnants of the Ottoman Empire after World War I and created an extremely secular and nationalistic state that had not existed there before. This marked the beginning of what is referred to as Turkish democracy. As you will see, this government was actually exclusive. It disenfranchised openly religious groups and non-Turkish ethnic groups, such as the Kurds and the Armenians. So when Ataturk, this really prolific figure who embodied the secular Turkish democracy, died, the military saw it as their duty and responsibility to protect what had become known as Kemalist secularism, or the secular state that Ataturk had established. And they did, by staging coups in 1960, 1971, 1980, and 1997. That is, military leaders really took over the government for a certain period of time and hit the reset button on national politics, bringing it back towards the secularism that Ataturk had envisioned and implemented in Turkey beforehand. This reset took place at the expense of today's more conservative Islamist political parties, openly religious Turks that wished to practice publicly and other ethnic minorities, such as the Kurds.
3: So in brief, Turkish politics have really been characterized by this prolonged struggle between Kemalist secularists, or people who don't want religion mixing with their government, and Islamist groups that want Turkey's government to reflect their religious and cultural values, with ethnic minorities also playing a small role.
0: To be clear, Kemalist secularism is different from the American concept of separation of church and state, which is key to understanding why Erdogan has been so popular. Secularism in Turkey is closer to the French laicite, through which the government, quote, protects people from religion, rather than people's religion being protected from the government. For example, women wearing headscarves were banned from universities and other public institutions for decades in Turkey. You can see how, specifically in a country where almost everyone is Muslim, this was a serious issue where citizens felt as though their country was no longer their own.
2: Erdogan has taken
0: advantage of these feelings of disenfranchisement since his election in 2002.
3: And that sets us up nicely to discuss the latest coup, the one that happened last July.
0: F-16s would just like fly down uh, right above us like from like very low altitude. And uh, they would uh, exceed the sound barrier like next to us so that it sounds like an explosion. Like the glasses shook.
2: Oh, looks, yeah. But then the counter by of Erdogan
3: started that even scared some of us more. His political cleansing started and you could hear the mob, you'd hear people in the streets every evening with Turkish flags and shouting, Allah Akbar, God is great, and uh, you heard about soldiers being in the squares and being attacked by the
2: mob in the streets being lynched.
3: Those were the voices of two Turkish students, Dork and Mira, who were in Istanbul the night of the coup. We spoke with them to get a better understanding of why the coup happened and what it was like to be in Turkey when it happened. But on a more basic level, here are the details of what transpired. On July 15th, a faction within the Turkish Armed Forces launched a coup against the Turkish government by attempting to forcefully take over Turkey's National Intelligence Organization, the Police Special Operations Department, and other strategic units. They also specifically targeted Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, at his holiday resort with the goal of, and I quote, eliminating him. However, while the military orchestrated the coup, in the end it was the Turkish people who determined its trajectory.
0: Yeah, so the vast majority of Turkish people rejected the military coup, either in support of Erdogan or, for those who don't approve of him, as a show of solidarity and support for Turkish democracy and the political process. Erdogan supporters were more fervent in their opposition, taking to the streets and social media in groups, stopping the coup through vocal support of Erdogan, and in some cases physical violence against military forces. And in the context of Turkey's past coups, this sort of response is unprecedented. In the past, the coups had massive popular support, but last July, the coup was, in effect, defeated by the citizens of Turkey.
3: So why was there an attempted coup? And why did it happen when it did?
0: As we said before, Turkey has a history of military coups that restore secular politicians to power in the name of protecting Ataturk's vision of Turkish democracy. Since Erdogan's rise to power, the politics have been flipped. Because Erdogan's regime effectively eliminated the political influence of the Kemalists through purges years ago, their party was not exactly in a position to ignite forceful opposition. Instead, most people agree July's coup was probably authored by the Gulen Movement, which is really interesting since a. they're an Islamic social movement so clearly linked to strong religious ideals, and b. the Gulen Movement and their leader Fethullah Gulen used to be allied with the AKP, Erdogan's party. Earlier this year, there was information being promoted through the Turkish government that another purge was incoming in August, which would radically escalate the removal of Gulen supporters at the highest level of the military. We'll talk more about who the Gulenists are and why Erdogan feels so threatened by them later. But basically, this is what you need to understand about the coup's timing. The history of military coups, the fear of Erdogan's growing influence, and the time pressure to act before August all contributed to the decision to execute it on July 15th. What the coup's authors didn't expect was for the coup to be forcefully rejected so strongly by the Turkish people.
3: And that puts Erdogan, the sitting president, in a uniquely powerful position. He has come to represent the ideological cause of the thousands of Turkish citizens who literally put themselves in the line of fire on his behalf. He is the voice and the protector of a people who have long felt their government doesn't represent them, and he symbolizes a return to their cultural and religious values in Turkish politics. His supporters, who number over half of the Turkish population, feel enfranchised by his leadership. That's a lot to take in. That's a lot to put on one person. is a smart guy, and the magnitude of these circumstances isn't lost on him. In fact, he's actively making use of his position to consolidate power and advance his own political and personal agendas. And he began that effort less than two hours after the coup began, when he called his supporters into the street via FaceTime, promoting solidarity and violence in the face of a real threat to the government. This counter-coup, as it came to be called, gained momentum in the weeks and months following the coup, ultimately resulting in massive numbers of people being purged from Turkey's public and private sectors.
2: The numbers are staggering. To give you an idea, here's a very basic outline of what's happened. Almost 9,000 police officers fired. 21,000 private school teachers suspended, 10,012 soldiers detained, 2,745 members of the judiciary suspended, 21,700 Ministry of Education officials dismissed, 1,500 university deans forced to resign, more than 1,500 Ministry of Finance officials suspended, and, very significantly, more than 180 media outlets shut down. Additionally, Erdogan has declared an indefinite state of emergency, which allows him to rule by decree, suspend parliamentary democracy, derogate from Turkey's major human rights obligations, and construct an executive presidency in which he is free to operate without restriction from the Turkish parliament. Effectively, he has reduced Turkey's government to one-man operation, and that man is him.
3: This seems like a good time to mention that many Turkish citizens, both inside and outside of Turkey, are hesitant to weigh in about the coup and the Turkish government for fear of repercussions. We spoke to multiple Turkish citizens while working on this story, and we want to emphasize that the views presented in this podcast belong to us, the Generation staff, and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our sources. With that, here's more on Erdogan.
2: Since his appointment as Prime Minister in 2002, Erdogan has strategically consolidated political power into his party and uses the power and popularity of the AKP to transform Turkish political institutions and the Turkish political process.
3: The AKP, by the way, is Erdogan's party. It's the largest Islamist party in Turkey and, well, the largest party in Turkey in general. Erdogan, who has led the AKP since it was founded in 2001, has been very successful in capturing the support of minority populations.
2: So, within two years in office as the Prime Minister, Erdogan and the AKP passed reform packages which limited the role of the military in Turkish politics, abolished state security courts, and restricted minority rights and protections, to name a few.
3: But it's important to note that despite his authoritarian and discriminatory actions, a majority of Turkish people
2: still support Erdogan. Many of Erdogan's supporters think that being near him allows miracles to happen and that his presence exudes a kind of goodness and justice. He has almost created a cult-like following, which in turn fuels his personal ambitions. For the past five years, he has talked about staying in office until 2023. So we're talking about someone who was appointed prime minister in 2002, elected president in 2014, and will stay in that office for nine years. The length of that term would be unprecedented in Turkish history or any democratic country for that matter. 2023 represents the centenary of the Turkish Republic, and Erdogan is driven to mold the country into a product of his own legacy, ultimately replacing that of Ataturk.
0: Erdogan became the legitimate leader of Turkey through democratic means, but over the past few years he has consolidated executive power and manipulated popular support to change the trajectory of the country as a whole. Since 2007 Erdogan has used the national court system to prosecute his political enemies. Secular military leaders and lawmakers were tried and imprisoned during the Ergenekon trials from 2007 to 2013. These trials focused on limiting the power of the military, which was popular in Turkey, But these partisan trials were not trials in the traditional sense of the word. Rather, they were a means for Erdogan to prosecute political opposition in a nationally legitimate way, by labeling it treason. Erdogan further combated political dissenters with the national court system and police power during the AKP's ongoing split with the Gulen Movement. The Gulen Movement is another Islamist group that allied with the AKP against Kemalist politicians and other public officials. In December of 2013, the Gülen Movement went public with an investigation of high-level corruption that focused on the AKP and even implicated some members of Erdogan's family. In response, Erdogan launched a campaign against the Gülen Movement, culminating when Erdogan officially labeled the Gülen Movement a terrorist organization in December of 2015.
3: In previous national elections, the AKP and the Gülen supporters allied themselves in order to win seats from Kemalist secularists and force their party out of power. However, in a move typical of his leadership, Erdogan abandoned this alliance when it proved inconvenient, or, as was the case here, a threat to his authority. In doing so, Erdogan turned the Gulen movement into a national enemy that he used as a rallying point to consolidate popular power. And July's coup has only helped him do this. Because of the leader of the movement, Fethullah Gulen, who lives in self imposed exile in the United States, is widely believed to have authored the coup, Erdogan has a ready-made excuse to persecute his supporters. He is using the criminal justice system to punish political dissenters and others who speak out against his regime, which strongly contradicts the democratic ideals of political freedom and the sharing of national power. Although Erdogan's supporters may not see it in the same way, the use of the phrase Turkish democracy rings hollow.
0: Turkey is currently pervaded by a culture of fear. Erdogan politicizes potential military coups and government overthrows by secular leaders to stoke popular resentment and anxieties. He also divides Turkey by the quote othering of Kemalist secularists and other non-Islamist political groups within the country, meaning the Islamists create an in-group and use the Kemalist parties as a common ideological enemy to unite against.
3: And this isn't the first time Turkish leaders have scapegoated the other to promote the unity of their people.
0: Erdogan models his recent hyper-nationalist or ultranationalist tendencies to engage popular support after the brand of nationalism Ataturk employed when he founded modern Turkey nearly a century ago. Turkish hypernationalism is not based on religion, but instead Turkish culture and pride, which allows Erdogan to gain more supporters from outside his Islamist base. As you heard earlier, Erdogan has also promoted the narrative of Islamists finally being represented in their own country. Even though most Turks oppose the coup, Turkey remains politically polarized between Kemalists and Islamists. The failed coup reinforced both the fear and fierce pride of many Islamist Turks who were pushed aside during past military coups.
3: Overall, Erdogan does three things exceptionally well. First, he successfully promotes an us-versus-them mentality of Turkish nationalism that focuses on Turkish culture and religion. Second, he leverages the Islamist political groups who finally feel they are being heard and represented at the national level. And third, he has created a common national enemy in the form of the Gulen movement. By navigating these political divisions, Erdogan has cemented a base of power that elected him in 2014 and has expanded the reach and influence of the executive branch since.
2: As we talked about earlier, the ongoing counter coup has also had an intense negative impact on media freedom in Turkey. Erdogan has been taking control of the press through state takeover of popular media outlets, and the coup gave him license to be more aggressive in the name of state security, shutting down over 180 media outlets since July. Clearly, the crackdown on freedom of press and free speech comes at a cost. The legitimacy of Erdogan's regime in the international sphere falls, and domestically, he creates new enemies in the form of academics and journalists. Freedom House currently gives Turkey a press freedom score of 71 out of 100, with 100 being the worst. To put that in perspective, Pakistan has a score of 64, and Iraq is equally scored at 71. Since Turkey's past focus on joining the EU, the country has undergone a massive shift away from democratic values of political opposition and free speech due to Erdogan's national politics of fear. you? Here's the Cliff Notes version. Erdogan built a base on Islamist and
3: minority resentment of Kemalist and secularist policies, gaining a popular majority that has allowed him to make major changes to the Turkish constitution and the general direction of Turkey as a whole. By using the police and executive power to jail political opponents and take control of national media, Erdogan has polarized the country and made himself the only real political option. Once he gained a small majority of voters, Erdogan took to referendums to change the constitution, implementing majoritarian rule and bypassing safeguards against a tyrannical majority. These constitutional changes, enacted by a slight majority of Turks, were implemented by legitimate means, but have since been used to crack down on Erdogan's political opponents. They made it possible for Erdogan to stay in power as long as he has, and new elections and referenda could allow him to continue as president for even longer. Lack of checks on majoritarian power or protections for minority groups within Turkey will likely end with Erdogan ruling an executive government much closer to other authoritarian regimes in the Middle East than the Turkish democracy envisioned by Atatürk. Meanwhile, in America, the country is preparing to wrap up a particularly tense election season.
1: Every time I log on to my phone, computer, just to check the news, I see the election, and that's incredible, since most of America never really pays attention to politics. And a big part of things, I think, is Donald Trump, a Republican nominee.
3: Since day one, Trump has spouted inflammatory rhetoric, rhetoric that conflicts with American Democratic values. I
1: would build a great wall, and nobody builds walls better than me, believe me. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. They have no respect for human life. He's a a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured, okay? I hate to tell you. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. When I turn on the television and I listen to these, you know, the talking heads who are not smart people at all, they call them elite. My education's better than any of them. That's a typical case of the press with misinterpretation. Well, I just don't respect her as a journalist. I have no respect for her. I don't think she's very good. I think she's highly overrated. You know, you could see there was blood coming out of her eyes. uh, Blood coming out of her wherever.
3: What Trump is doing here is unprecedented, and people like it. Normally, presidential candidates don't criticize the legitimacy of the American election process. Normally, presidential candidates don't attack the media, individual journalists, or the integrity of journalism that presents them in a negative light. Normally, presidential candidates don't shamelessly level insults against minority populations and women. Normally, presidential candidates don't threaten to jail their opponents. Clearly, Trump isn't a normal presidential candidate, which is one of the reasons he has such widespread support. He's speaking to Americans that feel disenfranchised or who feel as though their country is being taken away from them.
1: I am your voice. I alone can fix it. I will restore law and order to our country.
3: He takes ideas that are toxic, taboo within both the political arena and society at large, and gives them a voice. And he mainstreams them. And when he does that, he forces everyone else to mainstream them, too.
1: America has a very recent history of racism that has never really disappeared. This can be seen throughout American society. African-American teenagers, for example, have the lowest employment rates and the highest incarceration rates and are the least likely to get a college degree. Characterizations of the black community and other minority communities are often racist, but most Americans don't label it like that. It is a taboo in America to be called racist or to self-identify as racist, but that doesn't mean that Americans have evolved beyond racism. There are large populations in the U.S. that are either racist or support racist rhetoric without recognizing that they harbor extreme negative biases against minorities. The racist uncle has become a trope in popular American culture. Everyone knows someone who has sometimes made questionable remarks about minority groups, a relative who makes small talk really awkward at Thanksgiving. Trump has given these people a voice. And more importantly, by bringing this dialogue to the national stage he has normalized it. He is vocalizing sentiments, many of them completely unacceptable by even the most base standards of human decency, that unfortunately are shared by a vast percentage of the American populace. And in doing so, he is normalizing these ideas. He is saying, it's okay to be racist, it's okay to be sexist, and it's okay to be xenophobic because I feel this way too, and because it's a natural and normal way to feel.
3: And that's a really powerful strategy on two fronts. First, as Trump himself observes, it gives him a sort of immunity from criticism. Because he's already said the most offensive and terrible things imaginable, because he's already broken every standard of what should be acceptable to say in front of a national audience, and as Clinton is quick to observe children, his toxic and I'm actually running out of adjectives to describe how terrible Trump's candidacy has been. Rhetoric doesn't hurt his political standing.
1: The people, my people are so smart. And you know what else they say about my people? The polls. They say, I have the most loyal people. Did you ever see that? Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like
3: incredible. Second, he makes appeals to deep-seated and emotionally charged beliefs held by his electorate, taking on the role of spokesperson for the terrible things that people think but do not say for fear of being politically incorrect. By evoking these feelings, Trump becomes more than a political figure. He embodies their personal identities and sense of moral justice. Any rejection or attack on Trump is also a personal attack on his supporters and their own values. Erdogan and Trump are both strongmen, playing on the emotions and resentment held by their supporters. earlier in the podcast, Erdogan refers to himself as a messianic figure, with many of his supporters believing that he brings good fortune to the people around him. In Trump's campaign, we see the same ideas. Trump portrays himself as the only savior of the country and his policies as the only option that the U.S. has moving forward. Trump's actions and rhetoric add to the already existing polarization in the U.S., which he exploits to fashion himself as the only legitimate option, while all other candidates represent deceit and destruction of American norms. He portrays his rivals as morally and intellectually below him, and his opposition as illegitimate, calling them names and degrading their actions.
1: Trump's discourse, whether it be attacking the judiciary by calling out federal judges on the basis of their ethnic background, Discouraging facts presented by the media or calling the electoral system rigged are all elements that we also see with Erdogan. These accusations are a threat to our democratic framework and are examples of majoritarian politics. And if these accusations survive the checks and balances of American constitutionalism, we may ultimately see a shift towards democratic reversal. Ultimately, if Trump gets elected, we may see a shift in the overall public opinion on certain issues. His claims and accusations could very well become the framework of what the media presents and become embedded in the very core of America. This change in popular American values can in turn change our democracy, and this democratic reversal we are talking about doesn't just occur in one generation. If we look at Turkey and use Erdogan as an example, he has been the prime minister ever since 2002. And in the very beginning of his rule, he had trouble appealing to the far right. Since then, Erdogan has used his slight popular majority to consolidate power in the executive presidency, specifically through public referenda that changed the Turkish constitution in his favor.
3: These are the actions of a strongman, and they could be replicated by Trump should he be elected. We spoke with a Turkish citizen who requested to remain anonymous to assess the risk of something like this happening in the U.S.,
0: What Turkey is going through today is what would happen if you entered into a fourth Trump presidency, by which I mean Trump is elected, and then he proceeds to, in a way that is constitutionally valid, procedurally correct, persuade two-thirds of the states to live term limits. And he is re-elected, and re-elected again, and re-elected a fourth time, by which time any safeguards that may have existed constitutionally or otherwise would be subject to democratic reversal. And everything that the AKP has done has had the... um, mantle of legitimacy accorded by majoritarian politics. It has not protected the rights of a minority, it has not protected the independence of the judiciary, it has not respected the separation of powers, but it has absolutely had the support of a bare majority in the country. And if it's possible to translate that bare majority into the procedural power necessary to alter the safeguards, then no country is immune.
3: While working on this story, we felt compelled to understand why the strong man is rising to power all over the world. After all, that's the question we all have when we look at our own election. How did Trump get where he is? Why are people supporting him? How did this happen? To answer these questions, we must step back and look at the bigger picture. It's no secret that the world is changing rapidly, and this process of globalization has changed the way people interact with their local communities, their countries, and the world around them. The recent rise of ultranationalism and, quote, othering in many countries is the product of a more globalized world, a sort of bounce-back effect from the liberalization of international economies, borders, and information. People in the United States aren't accustomed to thinking about the financial crisis of 2008 as a global event. But it was, and it drew back the curtain on specific winners and losers in globalization.
0: Worldwide, people in the middle to the bottom of the socioeconomic spectrum watched as elites build out elites. The vast majority of people were not bailed out after the crisis, instead left to fend for themselves. Trump and Erdogan's base of supporters started with those who were permanently disadvantaged and disenfranchised, themselves a product of the global financial crisis. Trump and Erdogan represent a class of political opportunists who know how to channel this sense of frustration, resentment, and disenfranchisement into nativist politics. They're not the first people to adopt this strategy, and they won't be the last. They're speaking from an age-old political script. They point to an internal other, an enemy that's responsible for their problems, for a specific group suffering, and ostracize that enemy so as to empower their supporters. They breed a sense of superiority, The notion that they are fundamentally better, smarter, or more worthy than some community that they must then vanquish or repress.
3: Erdogan consolidated power by creating internal enemies, like the Kemalists and later the Gulen movement, to polarize the country and become the one true representative of all Turks. Trump has done the same, reaching out to disenfranchised Americans that harbor resentment against socioeconomic change and the feeling that America is no longer their own. Comparing Trump and Erdogan has allowed us to pinpoint how they're empowered, how they use their power, and why people support them, and we've discovered a troubling narrative. In a globalizing world, it is increasingly possible for authoritarian leaders, demagogues, strong men, to construct powerful regimes by capitalizing on the anxiety and frustration of their populace. Erdogan, Turkey is progressively moving towards an executive presidency with fewer checks on his power and plans for hereditary dynastic succession. We're not saying that if Trump is elected, America will immediately morph into Turkey. However, if we do elect Trump, we're taking a dangerous step onto the path Erdogan began to construct when he was elected in 2002. This episode of Global Voices was directed and edited by me, Sarah Wyman. The podcast is produced by Holt Alden, Jason Lee, and Susan O. Oh. Our theme music was composed by the brilliant kasha Kasmala Dalbeck, and we also used tracks by Blue Dot Sessions from the Free Music Archive. The sound bites included in this episode were sourced from YouTube channels including CNN, Today, Brand Grafissimo, and World Prestige. Special thanks this week to Mira and Doruk, who provided invaluable insight and feedback for this episode. Global Voices is a production of the UCLA Burkle Center and The Generation, UCLA's foreign affairs journal. We're going on hiatus for a few weeks after the release of this episode to start work on a full season of Global Voices podcasts. In the meantime, The Generation will be publishing articles as usual on our website, the-generation.net, and we would love to hear your thoughts about this podcast via our Facebook page or email at generationucla at gmail.com. From the Generation podcast team, thank you so much for listening.